Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 266. Today's big Bible question, when is sorrow a good and healthy thing? Plus the old man and the college kids. So a blessed Friday to you, dear friends. Today's Bible readings begin with a shock. 2 Samuel 14 features no deaths or murders that I noticed on the first read-through, although it was a cursory read-through. And I will say for you um, vegetarians, I suppose, an innocent barley field is burnt very badly and probably suffers terribly. So it's not a passage without some level of violence in it. We'll also read Ezekiel chapter 20, Psalm 68, and 2 Corinthians 7. Now, when I was a senior in high school, I began to attend a church in Alabama called Hildale Baptist. The youth group there welcomed me, even though I lived like 40 or 45 minutes away from the church in a different county altogether. Uh, But the thing is, my best friend and his girlfriend attended there, and we all went to school together. And it was the kind of school that we all went together that drew people from all over a two, maybe even a three-county area And so it was that I ended up at church with my friends. The youth group there was big and thriving, and the church was actually pretty large too, 500, 600 people on a Sunday morning, something in that neighborhood. Uh, The college group, however, uh, was not big. It was actually kind of small and drab and lifeless. And as I graduated high school and went into college, it was kind of a bummer because there was only like five or six people in there. And... I don't know that they really liked each other or whatever. Um, and, and we kind of went from like a high energy youth group to kind of a not high energy college group. There was no excitement or whatever whatsoever. But interestingly enough, throughout that year, uh, church wise and college wise, it, it started kind of weak, but God sent several people to that church to work with the college group. And we saw, ultimately, over the years that I was in college, sort of a revivalish type thing happen during my time there. First, he sent a missionary couple with three young children to teach us on Wednesday nights. Um, They weren't young and hip and cool and all of those kind of things. They were parents, and uh, they had kids, and they had lives, and they had jobs, and they were very straight-laced and all that kind of stuff, but man, did they really, really love the Lord wholeheartedly, and they loved us, and they'd been on the mission field, and honestly, I'm in ministry right now in large part thanks to their ministry. Now, God, a few months into that group kind of growing and forming and God doing some amazing stuff in us, we... we um we began to be hungry to not just meet on Sunday morning, which we did, and Sunday night, which we did, and Wednesday night, which we did. Like this college group, we uh, we went to church. We went to Sunday school on Sunday morning. We went to church. We went to church on Sunday night. We hung out afterwards. We went to church on Wednesday night and hung out afterwards. But honestly, for our group, that became not enough. So we started having this Thursday night Bible study. Initially, we led it ourselves, just members of the group. But... God sent another person to help our group, and his name was Brother Hain Sandifer. And ultimately, we asked him to teach us. Now, Brother Hain, or High Pockets Hain, as some of his grandchildren called him, hadn't been cool in a few decades by the time we found him. He was a retired pastor um, and looked, by all appearances, to be a old uh, gentleman, but he absolutely exuded wisdom and godliness. 
And so, like I said, we asked uh, our college group, asked him to teach us the Word of God on a Thursday night, and he did. In fact, Brother Haynes spent the last years of his life uh, teaching us the word of the, God, uh, word of the Lord. We didn't know it at the time, but he was dying of cancer, and he never let on, and he still faithfully taught us young whippersnappers the Word of God, and honestly, I'm forever grateful for him. I am also grateful that he made my girlfriend at the time and I memorize Scripture. And, you know, just, just saying that kind of causes the old memories to flood back. That's been a while. Um, that was an amazing young woman. Beautiful, fun to be with, the most amazing eyes ever. Man, we had some good times in college. I can almost just, even though it's been like 30 years ago, I can almost feel her head leaning on my chest and smell her hair and her perfume. I wonder where she is right now. I miss her a lot. But, you know, I do console myself with the knowledge that she's probably in bed where I last saw her. Uh, as she sort of fell asleep tonight in the middle of us talking, which is pretty normal because she's an early person and I'm a night owl. And I think I'll see her in the morning when I drag myself into the kitchen for a cup of coffee. Um, I'm sure she'll already be up reading, teaching, or planning something important. But you know what? This is not a story about my wife. This is a story about Brother Hain. And as I was saying, Brother Hain made my former girlfriend and you know current wife and I memorize Bible verses. And we did it too. Janet did it, my wife, because she's dutiful and she already valued Bible memorization. And uh, she just did good stuff because you were supposed to. <laughs> that was not my story. The real shocker is that I memorized Bible verses too. And the reason why I did is because, honestly, there was just no way in the world to say no thank you or no or whatever to Brother Hain. And I couldn't, like, uh, scoot out of it like I did so many other things at that time because, you know what, he was too godly, too old, and he honestly probably had some sort of powers. Anyway, I was afraid of him and loved him a lot at the same time. So I memorized Bible verses, and I even remember being out on dates with Janet and uh, we would pull out our little, uh, he had, we, well, I don't know if he gave them to us or or she, my wife bought them, uh, girlfriend at the time, but we had these cards on them, like little business cards with Bible verses, and as we were eating on dates, we would go through them and say the Bible to each other, and I guess that sounds kind of weird now, but like I said, man, Brother Hain had powers, and he um he made, he made us do that, and we wanted to do it, and it was so helpful for me to do that kind of thing. One of the verses we memorized uh, that I've never forgotten is the basis of our focus question today. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Well, you know what? Let's go read that whole chapter, and then we're going to talk about what Paul means there by godly sorrow and why it's so important. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. So then, dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, corrupted no one, taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you, since I have already said that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm very frank with you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with encouragement. I am overflowing with joy in all of our afflictions. In fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, 
comforted us by the arrival of Titus, and not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, But worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What deep longing. What zeal. What justice. In every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not because of the one who did wrong or because of the one who was wrong, but in order that your devotion to us might be made plain to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. In addition to our own comfort, we rejoiced even more over the joy Titus had because his spirit was refreshed by all of you. For if I made any boast to him about you, I have not been disappointed. But as I have spoken everything to you in truth, so our boasting to Titus has also turned out to be the truth. And his affection towards you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of all of you and how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that I have complete confidence in you. So that's a powerful passage. And I believe one of the primary things Paul is communicating to us is that repentance from sins is not merely a process of sinning, then flippantly asking God to forgive us of our sins, and then going right back and sinning again. I take that process of, you know, sinning and then saying, oh God, I'm so sorry, uh, forgive me. And then and then just kind of continuing on our about, about our business. I take that to be the sort of worldly sorrow that Paul is talking about in this passage. And I take from this passage that that kind of worldly sorrow or empty sorrow is meaningless to God and not effective in any way. In a genuine believer, sin should produce godly grief and we, we repent out of that grief. That seems to be what Paul is indicating in the next verses when he says, See what eagerness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So friends, we are in grave danger if we can sin without any real and felt grief, nor any desire to repent and show the fruits and actions of repentance. Godly sorrow is tangible, obvious, genuine, unfeigned, and touches the depths of the soul. It also goes beyond just a mere moment of sadness and into the realm of that kind of action that Paul describes in our passage today. So let's listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones here on this subject. And he says this, Our Lord has put it perfectly in his parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, I'm the tax collector, said, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. That is the position of those who have really repented. They do not, they cannot say more than that at that point. They are brokenhearted. They realize it all. They can but cast themselves upon the mercy of God. They cannot plead anything else, but they plead that. That, in a sense, is a definition of repentance. Now, just to complete this thought, let's consider briefly the differences between mere remorse and repentance, because they are not the same thing. 
In remorse, you can have a sorrow because of failure, and you can be very annoyed with yourself because you have done something that you know to be wrong and that you should not do. Indeed, remorse remorse can go further. It can even include a fear of the consequences. Let us never forget that remorse can go even that far. But that is not what Paul calls godly sorrow. Let me remind you of what it is. And then Dr. Jones quotes our passage today, and he says, you see the passion, the feeling, the emotion. They've seen it with their minds. They feel it and have done something about it. So what are the differences between repentance and remorse? Well, true repentance, differing from remorse, includes these elements. It gives us a sense of having offended against God and having grieved Him and hurt Him. It gives us a sense of pollution and of unworthiness. It makes us say, as William Cowper did, I hate the sins that made you mourn, that drove you from my breast. It gives us a longing and a determination to be rid of sin. This vehement desire, this activity, this zeal, this revenge that Paul mentions, or indignation, this is godly sorrow. We can again sum it up in one of the Beatitudes of Jesus. This is the ultimate test of true repentance and the thing that differentiates it most from remorse. Repentance gives us a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. It makes us desire to be like Christ and more and more like Him to be righteous and holy and clean. We do not simply feel sorrow because we have fallen again and because we are suffering afterwards and have let ourselves down. Not that at all. Remorse is negative. Repentance is positive. And then he quotes Charles Wesley, Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that feels thy blood so freely shed for me. That is repentance. And it's the Spirit who shows us our need. It is He who reminds us of our sin. There is nothing that is so likely to lead a man to prayer as his consciousness of his sin and of his need. And this is the peculiar work of the Holy Spirit. You see the difference between merely rushing into the presence of God with certain petitions and truly having fellowship and communion. You say to yourself, I'm going to have this audience with the King, eternal, immortal, invisible. Who am I to go in? What kind of creature am I? How am I covered? How am I shod? What is my appearance? In other words, the Holy Spirit is making you see your sin. He is convincing you and convicting you of your need. He is creating within you a godly sorrow, a true repentance. That is most conducive to prayer. He is preparing you. Amen. We will continue with 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1. Joab, son of Zariah, realized that the king's mind was on Absalom, so Joab sent someone to Tekoa to bring a wise woman from there. He told her, pretend to be in mourning, dress in mourning clothes, and don't put on any oil. Act like a woman who has been mourning for the dead for a long time. Go to the king and speak these words to him. And then Joab told her exactly what to say. When the woman from Tekoa came to the king, she fell face down to the ground, paid homage, and said, Help me, your majesty. What's the matter? the king asked her. Sadly, I'm a widow. My husband died, she said. Your servant had two sons. They were fighting in the field with no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan is risen up against your servant and said, Hand over the one who killed his brother so we may put him to death for the life of the brother he murdered. We will eliminate the heir. They would extinguish my one remaining ember by not preserving my husband's name or posterity on earth. The king told the woman, Go home. I will issue a command on your behalf. Then the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, the king, may any blame be on me and my father's family, and may the king and his throne be innocent. 
Whoever speaks to you, the king said, bring him to me. He will not trouble you again. And she replied, Please, may the king invoke the Lord your God so that the avenger of blood will not increase the loss and they will not eliminate my son. As the Lord lives, he vowed, not a hair of your son will fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please, may your servant speak a word to my lord the king. Speak, he replied. The woman asked, Why have you devised something similar against the people of God? When the king spoke as he did about this manner, he has pronounced his own guilt. The king has not brought back his own banished one. We will certainly die and be like water poured out on the ground, which can't be recovered. But God would not take away a life. He would devise plans so that the one banished from him does not remain banished. Now, therefore, I've come to present this matter to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought I must speak to the king. Perhaps the king will grant his servant's request. The king will surely listen in order to keep his servant from the grasp of this man who would eliminate both me and my son from God's inheritance. Your servant thought, May the word of my lord the king bring relief, for my lord the king is able to discern the good and the bad like the angel of God. May the Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, I am going to ask you something. Don't conceal it from me. Let my lord the king speak, the woman replied. The king asked, Did Joab put you up to all this? The woman answered, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or left from all my lord the king says. Yes, your servant Joab is the one who gave orders to me. He told your servant exactly what to say. Joab, your servant, has done this to address the issue indirectly, but my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God, knowing everything on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, I hereby grant this request. Go bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell with his face to the ground in homage and blessed the king. Today, Joab said, your servant knows I have found favor with you, my lord the king, because the king has granted the request of your servant. So Joab got up, went to Geshur, and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. However, the king added, He may return to his house, but he may not see my face. So Absalom returned to his house, but he did not see the king. No man in all of Israel was as handsome and highly praised as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the top of his head, he did not have a single flaw. When he shaved his head, he shaved it at the end of every year because his hair got so heavy to him that he had to shave it off. He would weigh the hair from his head, and it would be five pounds according to the royal standard. Three sons were born to Absalom and a daughter named Tamar, who was a beautiful woman. Absalom resided in Jerusalem two years, but never saw the king. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab was unwilling to come to him. So he sent again a second time, but still he would not come. Then Absalom said to his servants, See, Joab has a field right next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set fire to it. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab came to Absalom's house and demanded, Why did your servant set my field on fire? Look, Absalom explained to Joab, I sent for you and said, Come here. I want to send you to the king and ask, Why have I come back from Gesher? I'd be better off if it were still there. So now let me see the king. If I am guilty, let him kill me. Joab went to the king and told him, so David summoned Absalom, who came to the king and paid homage with his face to the ground before him. Then the king kissed Absalom. Now, friends, I'll pause here briefly. I know the whole burning of the field thing worked in this instance, but if you're calling or texting or emailing somebody and they don't answer you, I just would probably avoid setting fire to the field, thinking that that would be the thing 
that makes them finally answer your message. Eh, Maybe it's just me. Maybe we shouldn't do that. I don't know. Let's continue in Psalm chapter 68, verse 1. God arises, his enemies scatter, and those who hate him flee from his presence. As smoke is blown away, so you blow them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked are destroyed before God. But the righteous are glad. They rejoice before God and celebrate with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Exalt him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and celebrate before him. God in his holy dwelling is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows. God provides homes for those who are deserted. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious live in a scorched land. God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the desert, Selah, the earth trembled and the skies poured rain before God, the God of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. You, God, showered abundant rain. You revived your inheritance when it languished. Your people settled in it. God, you provided for the poor by your goodness. The Lord gave the command. A great company of women brought the good news. The kings of the armies flee, they flee. She who stays at home divides the spoil while you lie among the sheep pens. The wings of a dove are covered with silver and its feathers with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in the land, it snowed on Zalman. Mount Bashan is God's towering mountain. Mount Bashan is a mountain of many peaks. Why gaze with envy, you mountain peaks, at the mountain God desired for his abode? The Lord will dwell there forever. God's chariots are tens of thousands, thousands, and thousands. The Lord is among them in the sanctuary as he was at Sinai. You ascended to the heights, taking away captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, so that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord. Day after day, he bears our burdens. God is our salvation. Selah. Our God is a God of salvation, and escape from death belongs to the Lord my Lord. Surely God crushes the heads of his enemies, the hairy brow of one who goes on in his guilty acts. The Lord says, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, so that your foot may wade in blood and your dog's tongues may have their share from the enemies. People have seen your procession, God, the procession of my God, my King in the sanctuary. Singers lead the way, with musicians following. Among them are young women playing tambourines. Bless God in the assemblies. Bless the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is Benjamin, the youngest, leading them, the rulers of Judah in their assembly, the rulers of Zebulon, the rulers of Naphtali. Your God has decreed your strength. Show your strength, God, you who have acted on our behalf. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring tribute to you. Rebuke the beast in the reeds, the herds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people. Trample underfoot those with bars of silver. Scatter the peoples who take pleasure in war. Ambassadors will come from Egypt. Cush will stretch out its hands to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord. Selah. To him who rides in the ancient highest heaven, look, he thunders with his powerful voice. Ascribe power to God. His majesty is over Israel. His power is among the clouds. God, you are awe-inspiring in your sanctuaries. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again, son of man, face Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to it, this is what the Lord says. I am against you. I will draw my sword from its sheath and cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. Since I will cut off both the righteous and the wicked, my sword will therefore come out of its sheath against all humanity from the south to the north. 
So all humanity will know that I, the Lord, have taken my sword from its sheath. It will not be sheathed again. But you, son of man, groan, groan bitterly with a broken heart right before their eyes. And when they ask you, why are you groaning? Then say, because of the news that is coming. Every heart will melt and every hand will become weak. Every spirit will be discouraged and all knees will run with urine. Yes, it is coming and it will happen. This is the declaration of the Lord God. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy. This is what the Lord says. You are to proclaim a sword. A sword is sharpened and also polished. It is sharpened for slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Should we rejoice? The scepter of my son, the sword despises every tree. The sword is given to be polished, to be grasped in the hand. It is sharpened and it is polished to be put in the hand of the slayer. Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against against all the princes of Israel. They are given over to the sword with my people. Therefore, strike your thigh in grief. Surely it will be a trial. And what if the sword despises even the scepter? The scepter will not continue. This is the declaration of God, of the Lord God. So you, son of man, prophesy and clap your hands together. Let the sword strike two times, even three. It is a sword for massacre, a sword for great massacre, It surrounds them. I have appointed a sword for slaughter at all their gates so that their hearts may melt and many may stumble. Yes, it is ready to flash like lightning. It is drawn for slaughter. Slash to the right, turn to the left, wherever your blade is directed. I also will clap my hands together and I will satisfy my wrath. I, the Lord, have spoken. The word of the Lord came to me. Now you, son of man, mark out two roads that the sword of Babylon's king will take. Both of them should originate from the same land and make a signpost at the fork in the road to each city. Mark out a road that the sword can take to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah and to fortify Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon stands at the split in the road at the fork of the two roads to practice divination. He shakes the arrows, consults the idols, and observes the liver. The answer marked Jerusalem appears in his right hand, indicating that he should set up battering rams, give the order to slaughter, raise a battle cry, set battering rams against the gate, build a ramp, and construct a siege wall. It will seem like false divination to those who have sworn an oath to the Babylonians, but it will draw attention to their guilt so that they will be captured. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, because you have drawn attention to your guilt, exposing your transgressions, so that your sins are revealed in all your actions. Since you have done this, you will be captured by them, and you, profane and wicked prince of Israel, the day has come for your punishment. This is what the Lord God says, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things will not remain as they are. Exalt the lowly and bring down the exalted. A ruin, a ruin, I will make it a ruin. Yet this will not happen until he comes. I have given the judgment to him. Now you, son of man, prophesy and say, this is what the Lord God says concerning the Ammonites and their contempt. You are to proclaim a sword. A sword is drawn for slaughter, polished to consume, to flash like lightning. While they offer false visions and lying divinations about you, the time has come to put you to the necks of the profane wicked ones. The day has come for final punishment. Return it to its sheath. I will judge you in the place where you were created. In the land of your origin, I will pour out my indignation on you. I will pour the fire of my fury on you. I will hand you over to brutal men skilled at destruction. You will be fuel for the fire. Your blood will be spilled within the land. You will not be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. Amen and amen and amen. And Lord, have mercy. 
God bless you, friends, and may he comfort you and give you his peace. He is God Almighty. Turn to him. Godspeed.